So um, as I have been preparing, I have become more and more convinced that I need to have a better understanding of the love of God. And uh, maybe many of us are in the same place because knowing God as a God of love and knowing that not just in our heads, but actually at invading our hearts and the very depths of our souls will inform and influence everything we do and say, how we treat each other, how we relate to work colleagues and family and friends, and also how we speak to ourselves. Because we all have these little tapes that play in our heads. And those tapes can be positive and affirming and encouraging or can actually sabotage ourselves and our relationship with God by telling ourselves things that are unhelpful and sometimes untrue. As we understand more of his love, we can become more deeply rooted in his love. So we'll become more fruitful, more effective followers of Jesus. When Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus, he could have prayed for lots of different things. He could have prayed that there would be less persecution and the believers there would be safe and protected. He could have prayed that the believers there would be more effective and there would be more converts in Ephesus. Maybe that they would understand God's word better, become more rooted in the truth of God, or that they would see more signs and wonders when they prayed. Now, those things would all have been very good things to pray for. But we're going to read now and listen to what Paul's overriding request was to God when he prayed for the church at Ephesus. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. <coughs> and I'm going to be um, starting at verse 14. And I'm going to be reading from the um, New Living Translation, so it might be slightly different than some of your translations. It says, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious uh, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. <clears throat> then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness and life and power that comes from God. Paul's fervent prayer was that the people of God would have a greater and deeper understanding and appreciation of the love of God because that's where the power to live comes from. And so what do we think about <clears throat> when we say that God is love? Do we think about that kind of sugary, sweet, hallmark cards kind of love that's about warm, fuzzy feelings and, and a bit of gooey sentiment? The subject of love has inspired thousands of songs and poems and paintings and stories and films. 
And the media bombards us with images and ideas of love that bear little or no resemblance to the love that God tells us about in his word. Let's just look, um, Grant, um, at, the ne- at the definition, a definition of love. <clears throat> and this is a very earthly definition. An intense feeling of deep affection. The world often talks about love in terms of feelings and emotions. And unfortunately, those can be transient. They can change as quickly as the weather. They can fade away over time. And the second one is a deep, maybe you can't see that terribly well, a deep romantic attachment to someone. And often um, that's what the world perceives as love, something that grows from an initial attraction. Or it can be a great interest and pleasure in something or so, uh, someone. So we feel love towards someone who pleases us, who makes us feel good. But God's love is completely and materially different than this definition here. It's not about transient feelings. God's love is unwavering and unchangeable. It's not about an initial attraction because God loved us when we were completely unlovely. And it's not about loving us because he, we make him feel good because I'm quite sure a lot of the time we don't. So what is God's love like? What does he say in his word about how he loves us? The next one, Grant, there. Firstly, God's love is perfect. I have a picture very like this beside my bed because it speaks to me about the love that Father God has for me. How his hand encompasses mine when I can't hang on terribly well. God's perfect love for us is deeper than we can ever understand. The psalmist in Psalm 17, he describes us as the apple of our father's eye. Isn't that so amazing? We are the apple of his eye. He delights in us. He rejoices over us with singing, as it says in Zephaniah 3. If you ever have any doubts about the love of God and how intimate and close and how precious you are to him, read Psalm 139. You've searched me. You know me. God formed us. He knows everything about us. And that intimacy delights him. And his love isn't a a, a sort of in spite of love. I used to think that, that he knows all about me but he loves me anyway. That kind of begrudging in spite of love. That's not God's love because that love is not a perfect love. If Desi had proposed to me all those years ago saying, well, Suze, you're not the best catch. (laughs) There are maybe other girls around who are a little bit prettier. Um, Maybe they'll be a lot easier to live with. But you know what? I love you anyway will you marry me? I'm not sure how well that would have gone (laughs) because I would have seen that as a love that was far from perfect. And yet that's the kind of love that for a long time I attributed to God, that kind of in spite of love, because the truth is God loves me not in spite of, but because of, because I am his child, because he gave himself for me. 
because I'm the apple of his eye, because he made me and he knows me intimately. I was never any good at knitting. <laughs> in P4, we used to get a smack on the back of the knees with a ruler if we dropped a stitch. You wouldn't get away with that now. <clears throat> because the teacher would have said, you mustn't, you mustn't have been concentrating. You were talking, you were chatting, and that's why you dropped a stitch. And so you got a smack on the back of the knees. I got so many smacks on the back of my knees because I didn't even have to be chatting to lose a stitch. Sometimes before my horrified eyes, the stitch was slipping away and I could do nothing to save it. <clears throat> One year, um, the teacher set an assignment for us. We could choose to knit either a purse <laughs> a drawstring purse um, with, with panels that came up and drew together with a wee ribbon. It was a thing of beauty. Or we could knit a jumper. Well, well, the jumper was so far beyond me, it wasn't an option at all. So I started to knit the purse. And it was a disaster. <clears throat> After all my efforts... I didn't even have enough pieces of good knitting to make the drawstring purse. So I had to sort of um, think again and do a kind of a makeshift folded over purse with a little button on it, you know, to draw it together. And the day came when we presented our assignments. We had our purses or our jumpers sitting on the desks in front of us and the teacher walked around giving marks and comments and feedback. When she came to my desk, she looked down at my creation and she said, what is that? Now, I felt that was quite unfair because it obviously wasn't the jumper. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of stammered a wee bit and um, I said, well, I had a few problems, but, you know, um, I did my best. And she said, well, your best isn't good enough. Where does a child go when they're told their best isn't good enough? Where does an adult go when they try so hard to strive and strive and still they're told from a variety of sources they don't measure up? Shall I tell you where they go? They go to the arms of their father God who loves them with a perfect love. First John says a perfect love casts out fear. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of not measuring up. And our Father God pulls us in close and we hear again his songs of delight over us. And we know again that we are known fully and precious and loved with a perfect, unwavering love. Also... <clears throat> God takes the initiative. Thanks, Grant. God pursues us. Sometimes we try to fool ourselves. It's the other way around. But he always makes the first move. When we move towards him, it's because we are responding to promptings from his spirit. But he is always the initiator. The painting that you'll see up there is <clears throat> by Michelangelo. In the 14th century, he was commissioned to paint beautiful biblical scenes on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And one of those frescoes he called the creation of Adam. It took him four years to complete it. 
and the picture of the fingers of Adam and God so nearly touching, but just not quite, is one of the most iconic images of all time. And look what Michelangelo observed about man's relationship with his creator. I recognize this is Michelangelo's take on it. Look at God first. Look how his gaze is fixed on Adam. How he strains towards Adam, reaching out to him. And then look at Adam. He's kind of ambivalent. He can't quite be bothered. Just the slightest, tiniest amount of effort on his part and their hands would touch. But Adam rests back, extending a limp arm. It's just like he can't be bothered. God takes the initiative with us. He passionately pursues us. He had already formulated his plan of salvation before Adam was even created. In 1 Peter 1, it says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Adam's sin didn't catch God unawares. He already had a rescue plan in motion. And the creator already planned to live among his created, to die to win them back to himself. How scandalous is his mercy and grace and love for humankind that God would, as the hymn writer said, empty himself of all but love and bleed for Adam's helpless race. Paul says in Romans 5, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He took the initiative While we were still unlovely in every way, unlovable in our sin and our rebellion, relationship with God is God's idea, conceived by him, planned by him, actioned by him, fulfilled by him. And I know you don't want to read too much into a painting by a man, but I think God is still straining towards us this morning. His gaze fixed on us trying to catch our eye. Look up, he says today. See how much I am for you. I love you. I died for you. I'm reaching out for you now. Just the slightest movement from you and our fingers will touch. We'll be in relationship again. And then thirdly, God's love is sacrificial. Thanks, Grant. Earthly love is as much about our needs being met as meeting the needs of the one we love. In fact, if we're honest, it can be much more important for us to receive than to give. God loves us in a completely different way. God loved us with a love that put him in harm's way, that sacrificed everything to save us, to give us life and to allow us to love him back, living in relationship with him. This is not a namby-pamby hearts and flowers kind of love. It's a love that hurts and costs, but he gave it freely. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Thanks, Grant. See, God wanted our love, not our subservience. 
He could have demanded our obedience, overwhelmed us with divine force. He could have marched on our little planet with his hosts of angels to beat us into subjection, to demand our obedience and service. But God didn't want that. He wanted our love. And so he wooed us gently. In the Old Testament, his people rebelled time and time again. And he forgave them over and over and over again. Do you remember the prophet Hosea, who was married to Gomer? And Gomer was unfaithful over and over again. She prostituted herself with everyone, everyone in the whole town. And God said, take her back. Take her back. Take her back again. Because that's a picture of my love for my people. And he forgave and forgave and forgave. But even that didn't produce the love in the people that God wanted. And so he gave more. He became one of us. He lived in the dirt and the pain and the unholy mess that we had made. He felt our pain. He walked where we walk. And then he gave even more. He made himself nothing, as Philippians 2 says, humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He gave himself over to people he had created who mocked him and tortured him and killed him. And they thought they were taking his life, but he was giving it freely. He endured the punishment of the sins of the whole world laid upon his broken body. The depth of his sacrifice for us is shocking. And let's not romanticize this. We will never understand the horror of Christ's suffering as well as the suffering of the Father as he turned his face away from his only son, the one he loved. And why? Hebrews 12 and 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The joy of one day receiving us into the family of God. The joy of being able to give us those robes of righteousness. The joy of cleansing us with his blood and sacrifice. And receiving into his family children who have received his love and loved him back. And then also God's love is lavish and unconditional. Thanks, Grant. Often, worldly love is based on what we do, how we behave, how we make each other feel. The feeling can die if we aren't fulfilled by each other, affirmed by each other, if we don't get something out of the relationship. Jesus told an amazing story once to illustrate the love of Father God for his children. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son, but in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey renames it as the parable of the lovesick father. I love that. The parable of the lovesick father. And we know the story well, how the younger of two sons basically wishes his father dead. He tells his father he wants his inheritance now. He can't wait for his father to die so he can get his hands on the money. And the father who must have been wounded and devastated at his son's heartlessness, gives him what he wants. It would have caused his father hardship to do that. He would have had to sell off land and possessions to give his son his inheritance, but he did it. 
And the neighbors would have had plenty to gossip about, wouldn't they? The spineless father who wouldn't discipline his son. The son who had no respect. You can bet they would have a fair amount of condemnation for both of them. And then the son leaves without even a backward glance and lives for a while in a far land, wasting his father's hard-earned money, living a life of debauchery that would have broken his dad's heart. And then when the money had run out, and not a day before that, the son decides to go home again and throw himself on his father's mercy because he realizes even his father's servants are living better than he is at the time, feeding and living with pigs. And so he heads for home. And in the story, the scene cuts to the father who has been waiting every day, longing for news of his son, longing that he would come home safe and well. And then finally, finally, one day, he hears the news, maybe from one of the servants. Your son's been seen. He's, he's on his way home. And the father cannot wait to hold his son again in his arms. And he's conscious that the son is doing a terrible walk of shame right now in front of all the neighbors, in the dirt from the pigs, in the filthy rags that he's in with his head hanging down. And the father can't bear the thought that he would do that walk of shame on his own. And so he gathers up his robes and he runs to his son. And in those days, that would have been unheard of for an elderly man to lack such dignity. But he didn't care. He runs to him, runs to meet him, throws his arms around him and says, you're home you're home. Thank God you're home. I want to read to you from <clears throat> the book, What's So Amazing About Grace. <coughs> Philip Yancey says, not long ago, I heard from a pastor friend who was battling with his 15-year-old daughter. He knew even though she was underage, she was using birth control and several nights she had not bothered to come home at all. The parents had tried various forms of punishment to no avail. The daughter lied to them, deceived them and found a way to turn the tables on them. It's your fault for being so strict. My friend told me I remember standing before the plate glass window in my living room, staring out into the darkness, waiting for her to come home. I felt such rage. I wanted to be like the father of the prodigal son, and yet I was furious with my daughter for the way she would manipulate us and twist the knife to hurt us. And of course, she was hurting herself more than anyone. <clears throat> I understood then the passages in the prophets expressing God's anger. The people knew how to wound him, and God cried out in pain. And yet, I must tell you, when my daughter came home that night, or rather the next morning, I wanted nothing in the world so much as to take her in my arms, to love her, to tell her I wanted the best for her. I was a helpless, lovesick father. 
Now, Yancey says, when I think about God, I hold up that image of the lovesick father, which is miles away from the stern monarch I used to envisage. I think of my friend standing in front of the plate glass window, gazing achingly into the darkness. I think of Jesus' depiction of the waiting father, heart sick, abused, yet wanting above all else to forgive and begin anew, to announce with joy, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I stray all the time from the safety and security of my father's house. I could be feasting at his table with him. But instead, I get distracted and even rebellious, and I wander away from him. But he is waiting and longing to receive me back, to prepare a feast, to put the ring of sonship back on my finger, to spend time with his beloved child. Is that maybe some of us this morning? The Father knows our hearts. He knows whether you've wandered way far into a far land or maybe just down the road. Either way, he wants you back in relationship with him. He has things to show you. He has secrets to tell you. He has blessings to give you. Lessons to teach you so that you will be strong and mature. He just wants you to turn back again towards home. And he will run out to meet you. And then, God's love is stronger than death. Thanks, Grant. Romans 8 um, says, verse 35, says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all things, Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. Because you see, Satan will try to steal our joy and our, destroy our relationship with our Father. He will whisper the lies into your ear that you aren't good enough, that you don't measure up, that God doesn't, in fact, love you perfectly. But when Satan does that, we go back again to the truth that God has given us in his word, and we stand on that truth, and we hold our heads up, and we tell Satan, I am not a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I am loved with an everlasting and perfect love. I am the apple of my father's eye. And when things don't go the way we hoped and even prayed, and Satan tells us that God's favor mustn't be on us, that he doesn't love us enough to give us the desires of our hearts, then we remind Satan that sometimes he disciplines those who he loves. And that he only has our good in his heart. 
God's love is stronger than disappointment, stronger than fear, stronger than hardship, stronger even than death itself. And when we find our grip is slipping, we know that the strong arms of our loving Father will never, never let us go. And so we come back to our title this morning, God is love. Not just that he feels love for us, or even that he does loving things. His whole nature is love. He alone loves perfectly and completely, sacrificially, unconditionally, lavishly, abundantly, and even in the face of our ambivalence and half-heartedness. He loves with a love that is stronger than death. So what is our response to the love of God? There's a song that was written by Eden Abes called Nature Boy. You'll not know it unless you're very old, so probably best to pretend you've never heard it before in your life. <coughs> it was sung by Nat King Cole. Um, thanks, Grant. And the last line of it says, The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. It's not a Christian song. And the love he's singing about is between two people. However, if you apply that line to our relationship with God, it's actually quite profound and absolutely true. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. To learn to receive his love with openness and vulnerability with an open heart that says, Father God, Father God, help me to understand more of your love and learn to love him back. And so what do we do with what we've heard this morning? Maybe some of us need to return to his love, like the prodigal son. Just turn towards home again. And the father will run out to meet you. For some of us, maybe we need to learn to rest in his love. God never promised us a life that is easy. Jesus took his disciples out on a boat right into a storm so that he could demonstrate his power and his care for them. But he took them into that storm. So maybe for some of us this morning, it's not so much about returning to God's love, but actually just resting in his love and knowing that he is, his love is perfect and that he is sovereign, even when circumstances are hard. And then thirdly, I think we need to learn to love him back. Paul prayed that the Ephesian church would understand more of the love of God. If you have a Bible, turn to me to Re uh, Revelation 2. Oh. 
And it's a letter to one of the churches. Verse 4, it says, after he says about all, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You've endured hardship. But in verse 4, it says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. That was to the church at Ephesus. Same church that Paul prayed would have a better understanding, a better grasp of the love of God. Did they grasp it and then they lost it again? Or did they never reach out and grasp the love of God? You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. God doesn't want a passionless existence for us. It's not enough for him that we have a life of duty with no love, no passion, no life in it. He wants more. Love has to invade our hearts. Otherwise, it's not love. It's not just about understanding with our minds. We need to understand with our hearts. We need to allow that love of God to invade our hearts and our very souls. May God ignite that spark of love again. So it burns again with such passion and fervency that we cannot help but give ourselves over to him totally, heart and soul. The letters to the Ephesian church are encouraging, but also a warning. And maybe that's what God is saying to us this morning. Remember, remember your first love. Remember when you were passionate about me. Remember that I am passionate about you. Learn to love me back. Because that's where the power to live comes from. Let's pray. God, we thank you. God, we thank you. That you are a father who loves with a perfect love. A sacrificial love. That you took the initiative. That you love us with a lavish, unconditional love. And a love that is stronger than death itself. Help us to return to that love. To turn towards you again. Help us to rest in your love. And God, help us to love you back. Reignite that flame of passion and love for you. That we might share your love 
with a, a world that needs to hear about you. Help us to respond to what you've said to us this morning. In your strong name we pray. Amen.